passage in our first series of Genesis, okay? And so just to give you a little bit of uh, a breakdown as to what is going on. So Genesis is actually written in several different books in its original context. And so to some extent, there are a lot of natural dividers within the book of Genesis as the author tries to focus on different elements that uh, pertain to the readers and then even to us at the time. And so what we're doing is we're taking five different series because when we turn a corner on Genesis, you're really going to be able to feel that shift even in what the author is kind of getting at. And so this whole first series has been very much focused on creation, uh, the beginning of all things, where God uh, created man, where we came from, where sin came from, the effects of sin in our life, etc. And so that was the whole first series. This next series uh, is going to be actually our shortest series. It's only going to be three weeks long, but we're looking at Noah, the Tower of Babel, etc. And you'll feel the weight and the shift even of what's going on there. So just catch you up. Last sermon in our first series. Don't worry, we're still in Genesis, all right? We're tracking here for many weeks, though we will speed up some even today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we left off in verse 17 last week, so we're going to pick up this week. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take, keep that. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to read it during the week. Uh, you can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. Underneath the uh, events section, type in the well Austin, and you can follow along that way. Uh, no PowerPoint? Oh, live feed's not showing. All right, that's okay. Well, then you can't follow along on your smartphone, all right? You have to, have to use the physical Bibles like we're in 1992 or something. What is this, all right? That's all right. So now there's Bibles everywhere for you guys, and hopefully you have it on your phone. And if it comes up, then, uh, then we'll go ahead and pop it up. But anyway, um, as we're turning there, Genesis chapter 4, uh, I have a question for you. Uh, and also, I guess, kind of simultaneously a semi-confession there, right? When I was a kid, I remember in elementary school that I used to pretend that Herman Moore was my cousin. Out of curiosity, who in here knows who Herman Moore is? All right, we have five fans that are over the age of 25 of football, all right? So Herman Moore was a star receiver uh, for the Lions until Calvin Johnson, he actually held most of the Lions records. And the reason that I would say, I'm from Detroit, remember that Herman Moore was my cousin is because I was actually a pretty crafty kid, I would say. I knew that if I said somebody like Barry Sanders or uh, for you non-sports fans, like somebody like Michael Jordan, if I said like that was my cousin, then I would know that people would know assuredly that I was lying, right? But Herman Moore, like he's still kind of famous. There's a possibility he may be my cousin. So I was trying to be a little bit manipulative. I guess that's why I still love lying and deception games even today, all right? Um, but so out of curiosity, I used to do that all the time. How many of you would do that? You would lie and say like an actor, actress, an athlete, or somebody like that was, you were related to them or something like that. It's okay. Hands up, okay? It's okay. 
All right, seven of us. Okay, well, that is a failed analogy for the others of you that did not do that, apparently, or maybe wrong crowd. Maybe you pretended Bill Gates was your cousin or something. I don't know. Uh, But here's what I think, okay? I think the reason that I did that, and I think that the reason why some of us did that, and the rest of you do have this desire in your heart as well, is that there's this sense of us where we kind of desire to be famous in some way, shape, or form. And I don't necessarily mean famous like we want to star on the motion picture or we want to be the biggest, the baddest, whatever it may be. But there's something inside of us that to some extent desires to be exalted. And what would happen during those moments is when I would say, hey, Herman Moore is my cousin, because he was exalted or elevated in our culture, naturally me being able to be attached to him also to some extent elevated me. You tracking with that? And so I think that a lot of us tended to do that in some ways. And here's what I want to hypothesize, even in the midst of that, is I think that all of us, even the other 140 of us that didn't raise our hands to want to be famous, right? I think that all of us have some sort of desire in our hearts to be exalted or to be eternal. In fact, Scripture would say eternity is written on our hearts. We would seek God even in the midst of that. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is this desire. Because when I say that, because we're in church, our immediate probably thought is that that's a bad thing. The desire to be exalted is a bad thing. But I would actually argue that it's not. It's our definitions that are all jacked up. And so I hope that as we kind of reshape even our definition today, we'd be able to see why this desire is somewhat intrinsic on all of our hearts to be made something, to be someone, or at least to be connected to someone who's something. And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at two different genealogies today. All right. Woohoo! Nobody's excited about the genealogies? They're like, come on, man, I should have ran in the marathon, all right? No, we're going to read a bunch of different names, all right? I promise you that I will assuredly jack up at least one or two of them. So if you read it confidently, though, people think that's how you pronounce it. So that's how you get through passages like this, all right? Just in case you ever have to read one of these. But uh, I do want to let us see that, man, there are several different names that are here in Scripture. And even in the genealogies, God is not wasting his breath. Right? When we're reading through the Bible and we get to these pages, we go blank, father, blank, blank, father, blah, 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 blah. Okay, chapter six is what we tend to do, right? And I get it. It's, it's hard to kind of dig deep into what God's saying, even in the names. Now, throughout Genesis, there are several different genealogies. This is the only one where we're going to explicitly dive into and really, really focus and spend some time on. But I want to show us how to do it even a little bit to see, man, even within the genealogies, there's this deep, almost mysterious beauty of who God is. God is not wasting his breath. And there's something that he wants to show us even through a bunch of names, okay? So Genesis chapter four, we are going to pick it up in verse 17. It says this, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And we, when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was a 
forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, there are several things here. First of all, I did pronounce those names accurately, all right? It's Seth's line that's a little bit harder. But secondly, I want us to be able to see some of the themes here that are within Cain's lineage, all right? First of all, in the most part, Cain's line was probably a pretty wicked line. Cain's line was probably pretty messed up, pretty uh, construed, and we'll get into that. There's several reasons here, but one of them that we actually see is that Cain himself disobeyed the word of God literally immediately after God had given his word. If you remember last week, and you can even sneak a peek up there in verse 12, God told Cain that he would be a wanderer or a foreigner or a sojourner all the days of his life. But what happened in verse 16? He went and settled immediately after he left the presence of God. And verse 17, which we pick up today, he actually builds a city. So not only is he not a wanderer or a foreigner, he's actually building cities. Like he's establishing his name. He named it after his son. Now, there are several thoughts around this. But what if in God's punishment, you know, to go be a wanderer and a foreigner, what if that was actually God's way or his desire of trying to draw Cain back into intimacy with himself? What if that was a moment for God's grace? Because you remember, when God punished Adam, he clothed him, and we see that he did the same thing to Cain. He punished Cain, but he put a mark on him so that nobody could kill him. But the second punishment that God had for Adam was that Adam would have to face death. Now, in an immediate context, that sounds like it is bad, but what we talked about several weeks ago is that in the presence of death, Adam actually gets to be restored. Like, you don't want to live forever. You don't want to always be living with the, the, the corrosion that we feel in our flesh, the hostility that we have toward God, that death in some ways for the believer is actually a friend because we get to be restored into new life. And so even in God's judgment, he's giving a little bit of grace. What if he was trying to do the same thing for Cain? Because, you know, God calls us out into the wilderness, and that's usually where he meets us anyway. Right? A lot of us, when we're at our lowest point, when we feel like we're wandering, is actually when we connect most assuredly to God. Even all throughout Genesis, we see that when Jacob is in the wilderness, we go into Exodus when the Israelites are in the wilderness, and Joshua, when Joshua is in the middle of nowhere, and over and over and over again, it's in the middle of nowhere, King David, and on and on and on, where God actually meets us. What if God's punishment was actually designed to draw Cain back into intimacy, but immediately Cain rebels against what God's command was and says, I'm going to go build a city. Right? I'm not going to be a wanderer. I'm not going to run around. I'm not going to be lost. I'm going to go build a city. And immediately he jumps in and builds a city. Secondly, notice that Lamech, Cain's great, great, great son, had two wives. Right? This is the first instance of a polygamous relationship mentioned in Scripture. Now, two things. A, the fact that Scripture even calls it out shows that there's something wrong with this. Like if this was just okay, if this was normal, it would have allowed it to continue to go on. But uh, Scripture highlights it. Like, hey, here's an issue, right? Lamech is looking to break the marriage covenant, essentially saying, I'm going to have my own definition of what I think that marriage should look like. Which sounds very similar to our culture today. 
We get to define marriage. We get to say what we want about it. We get to control it. But Scripture's highlighting, look, there's something wrong with that. Now, why was there something wrong? Well, even in Genesis chapter 1, the very first passage in Scripture, it says that a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. A man, singular, his wife, singular. Not a man shall hold fast to his wives, or that there's some sort of relationship here. There's a covenant relationship that is designed to show forth the beauty of the gospel in Christ and the church, Paul would tell us in Ephesians 5. But literally, God has this command. And so immediately, Lamech goes out, and he begins to rebel against that. He takes what he wants. He defines it how he wants. He rebels against the command and the beautiful promise of God. Victor Hamilton, who's a commentator, says this. In fact, however, nearly every polygamous household in the Old Testament suffers most unpleasant and shattering experiences precisely because of this ad hoc relationship. The domestic struggles that ensue are devastating. Furthermore, Lamech is a haughty little guy, isn't he? I don't know why I said little guy. In my mind, Lamech is like a little person's name. Sorry if your middle name is Lamech, all right? But Lamech, this guy, is boasting and killing this man. He seems kind of even proud of it. I have struck down a man, a a young man, it even says. So this guy's likely a teenager or something like that. In our community group this week, somebody pointed out an awesome observation here. He said that Adam sinned, and he tried to shift the blame. He tried to uh, duck and dodge his responsibility. Cain sinned, and then he lied, and then got sarcastic. But Lamech sinned, and he began to boast in his sin. What does that show us? Well, it shows us the progression of sin and the progression of a fall that the longer we stay away from God, the more corrupt we will become. The more things will begin to get construed, the more downhill we will slide to where instead of just trying to hide from our sin, we begin to boast in our sin. And that is true even of Cain's line. I mean, can we be real? Like that's true even in my life. Is it not in yours? Like I feel it. When I'm spending time in the word, when I'm spending time in prayer, when I'm spending time in fellowship with other people, it's not that I don't sin. I still sin a lot, but it definitely doesn't come as easily or as quickly. But let me not have a quiet time for two or three days and not be reminded of truth and then let Micaiah come and slap me in the face like she did Saturday morning and watch what happens. right? Like it's easy. My fuse gets shorter or I begin to think that I'm something that I'm not. These old sins of pride come up or my anger comes up or whatever it may be. It begins to creep up into my life. The longer I spend away from God, literally even just in God's presence, spending time alone with him, I feel myself drifting away. Do you not feel that same thing? In a lot of ways, the Christian life is like this constant swim upstream Whereas we take a rest for a minute, our flesh begins to drag us backwards away from the presence of God to where we should be swimming towards. And so we see this in Cain's line. He kind of removes himself from God. He said, I I won't be in the presence of your face, but then Cain never seeks God's face again, according to scripture. So it's not like he sins and then comes back to God, which we'll see Eve, his mother did, here in a moment. Scripture highlights that for us, but he sins and then kind of moves away and continues to disobey God. So Cain's line is a wicked line. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we'll come back to this in a few minutes. This is the, the crux. This is like the, the part that's in between these two family lines, all right? And so you can keep a, a mark there. We're going to hit that uh, toward the end. Let's keep going to chapter 5. We're going to read all of chapter 5. You good with that? All right, I already feel a little bit of like drowsiness this morning. So there's no way to make names interesting. So just bear with us, all right? Here we go. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness and the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. And Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalal. That's a great name, right? Um, and Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years. By the way, if you're pregnant, just take notes of some of these names, all right? This could be your next child's name. Like Mahalal, all right? And had lived 65 years, and he fathered Jared. Mahalal lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalal were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God and he, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 600 and, I'm sorry, 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Quick side note. Whenever you see this repetitive theme in scripture over and over and over again, when there's a strong shift, you should draw your attention to it. It's saying the same thing over and over and over again. The only reason I read that is I wanted you to hear this shift. Because we could have just said, look, they all had sons, and this is how old they were when they had their first son, and they had other sons and daughters, and then they died. Because that's the theme of everything, but not here with Enoch, right? And so we're going to draw our attention back to that here in a minute. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Y'all still awake? All right. I should have said that was a great time to go to the bathroom if you had to go. <laughs> it would have been good for that. But um, 
Firstly, I did not pronounce all those names accurately, just in case you were wondering, okay? Secondly, all right, and importantly here, they lived a really, really long time, right? That may sound very, very strange to our ears, okay? Here's what I want to do. If you have a problem with that, then I would love for you to email me, and I can send you a link that will show you three different theories as to what people think, and I will give you my own personal thought and theory as to what I think behind that, but that's not the point of this text. So please don't get lost in that, okay? Please don't get lost in that. I want you to stay with me. But uh, this is not why it's being written. I mean, Seth's line is awesome, isn't it? Literally all the cool things that they did, you know? Like, for example, Methuselah was the longest living person that ever lived, 969 years. The name Methuselah carries with it this idea that after he dies, something will happen, And what happened? Well, in chapter 8, verse 10, the year that he died, the flood came upon the earth. So what is Methuselah's name telling us? Methuselah is showing us that God literally extended this man's life as long as humanly possible. Why? Because God was trying to give people as much time as possible to repent. God would rather have repentance than judgment. God would rather have restoration than destruction. So God stretches out Methuselah's life to try to create that. God is sustaining him to give him more of a chance. Enosh, he walked and people began to call upon the name of the Lord at that time, it says, at the beginning there. Lamech prophesied relief, that God would bring relief through his son Noah, said, here comes the man that's going to bring us relief from this curse, relief from our trial, from our struggle. He was trusting that God would bring rest. And Noah next week will read, did indeed walk with God. Noah had faith in God. So question, did you see anything interesting in Seth's line? Particularly when you compare it to Cain's line, were some things that stood out to you? Okay, maybe not immediately, but I want to draw this, okay? One of them that you may have realized is they have a lot of similar names, don't they? In fact, there's a chart here, you could throw it up. They each have 10 sons that they highlight, and a lot of them obviously are from the same father, but there are literally identical names. Some of these are the exact same names. And that next slide, I want to give you an example of one of the things you may have noticed. The seventh son of Cain was Lamech, and that son looked to inflict death upon other people, right? I will kill this man, and if anybody else comes for me, I will kill them 77-fold. On the contrary, Seth's seventh son, Enoch, walked with God and then never saw death. So one man looks to inflict death upon other people. One man walks with God and literally never sees death. This is one of the two men that did not die in Scripture. Him and Elijah get taken up to be with the Lord. One kills and one doesn't even see it. Notice again that the Canaanite Lamech, all right, he sought to fix his wrongs through means of revenge. I'm going to destroy people who destroy me. But the Sethite Lamech, he sought to fix his wrongs by desiring that God would bring forth relief. He prophesied, hey, maybe Noah will bring relief. And so instead of the Sethite Lamech being uh, haughty or caught up in trying to handle the wrongs himself, he actually pushes the wrongs onto God and says, God, would you bring relief? I want you to do something about this. There's even more here, but what is this showing? Bruce Walkey Uh, A professor at RTS says this, Cain's lineage is symbolic of human cultures with great civilizations and no God. Whereas Seth's line, what did they do? I mean, they were super, super cool, right? 
What, what did they invent? What are some things that they created? I mean, please think with us for a second, okay? These are the first human beings on earth, right? Like we have Adam and then Abel's dead. We have Cain in his lineage and Seth in his lineage, and they are living at the same time. And so what did Seth's line create? I mean, even if they accidentally did some things, you would think that they were the first that did something, right? Like, were they the first architects or engineers or, 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 or what were they? We literally don't know. What's the biggest difference that should stand out to us? One of them was famous on earth, and one of the lines was famous in the kingdom, One of the lines was focused all on what they were doing on earth. The first musician, the the, the first, uh, 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 what do you call it? People who work with iron. uh, uh, What's that? Welder, thank you. Right? The the first farmer, etc. Right? But what happens when you look at Seth's line? We don't know what these men did. We know nothing about them except that some of them decided that they would walk with God. One was famous on earth and one made God famous on earth. Enoch in the New Testament says was a preacher of the word. He told other people about the glory of God. One was focused on the kingdom now. One was focused on the kingdom to come. And so what does this mean for our lives? It's really simple. This is what the genealogy is trying to get us to see. Are you trying to live only for life now? Or are you living also for the life that is to come? Are you trying to build up a legacy? Are you trying to make yourself something? Are you trying to be famous on earth? Or does it extend beyond that? Are you trying to live for the kingdom? Now remember at the start, I said we all may want to be famous, and that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is, is when we begin to focus on the momentary versus focus on the eternal. And Cain's line was focused on the momentary. They were focused on the things that they could accomplish on earth, whereas Seth's line, they were focused on the eternal. They were walking with God, trying to live in holiness, telling other people about who God was. There was a very big difference between the two lines, even though we can rightly assume that they didn't just walk around and go, God is good, God is good, God is good, and that's all they did, right? Like they had to live. They lived for a long time. They had to make something or, 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 or build something or sustain their lives somehow, but we don't see this. Why? Because Scripture is trying to draw our attention to these contrasts. See, Cain's line isn't bad in and of itself. It's not like it's bad to be the father of music. God loves music. Hence the Psalms, the longest book in the Bible. It's all music to God, right? And all throughout the different places in Scripture, we see that God loves city builders. He loves a city. In fact, the new kingdom, instead of being a garden, will come down and it will be a city. God loves cities, right? God loves farmers, as one of them was. It was the first farmer. It's not like God thinks that people live in cities are better than the farmers. That's not true. God loves farmers, too. He's probably okay with farmersonly.com or whatever it may be, right? Like God is there. So it's not that these things in and of themselves are bad, but when it's not attached to something greater, what is it? What is it? What if you became the father of all music and then you sold your soul in the process? Is it really worth gaining the whole world to lose your soul? as we'll read in a second. The problem is, is that what Cain's line did was the pinnacle. 
They were great farmers or city builders or musicians or whatever they may did, but that was it. That was the end. That was the pinnacle. Whereas in Seth's line, there was a greater pinnacle because there was something to come that was better than what's just here on earth. We were made for something so much more, friends. We were made for greatness, actually. We were made to be great, I would argue. Problem is, are we trying to exalt ourselves or are we trying to exalt our great king? And that's what I think Jesus draws. There's a big difference that we have to continually fight against in our heart, okay? God loves these people. He made them for a reason. God is there for them. But if you realize through Seth's line, there's only one thing they're remembered for, and that's their relationship with God. They have no other identities. Cain's line did some cool things, but that's all they're remembered for, not their connection to their Savior. And if we're honest, a lot of us are focused only over here as well. Maybe a little bit on Sunday morning we think about the kingdom. Maybe a little bit in our workplace when a conversation happens to come up. Maybe a little bit. But our hearts are turned over here, are they not? I mean, mine is. And my job is to read the Bible and pray and disciple to be a pastor. Like, I'm supposed to be thinking about the kingdom. And it's so easy to think about the earth here and now. And that's it. Because we can't see the kingdom But that's what Jesus calls us to live our life for. If you flip over to Luke chapter 9, Jesus, I think, gives some of these same arguments. He's talking to his disciples about following him. And in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23, he says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself or loses his soul? To follow God may be hard sometimes. In fact, as we'll look at Noah next week, the whole world may reject you as it did with Noah. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? But God says, no, look, sometimes this is what it means to follow me. I'm going to ask you to come and die, to come and pick up your cross and to follow me, whatever the cost may be. That means giving up your own life. You may be rejected by the whole world just to follow God, but is it really worth gaining the whole world if in the end you lose your soul? I mean, even if you are the most famous, whatever it may be, and you live for 900 plus years, but that's the end of it, is that really enough? Because we're reading about a story that happened tens of thousands of years ago, and Seth's line is in heaven watching us right now, rejoicing that the word of God is being preached because they are with their king forever. They were able to be connected to something greater. Is it really worth just the momentary satisfaction? Jesus goes on in verse 46 in chapter 9. It says, An argument arose amongst them, which was the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, him who sent me for, he who is the least among you all is the one who is the greatest. The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And notice Jesus didn't say, how dare you? How dare you argue about who's the greatest when I'm standing here in your presence? How, how dare you? Jesus did not do that, right? He took a child and said, if you want to be great, this is what greatness looks like. This is what it means to be great. Jesus doesn't tell them, don't desire greatness. He tells them, understand what it looks like and desire that. 
to be the least, to be the servant of all, to be underneath everyone else, that you may pick everyone else up. This is what it means to be the greatest. Not that you would be the top, but that you would be on the bottom lifting up everyone else to the top. Jesus says, look, it's okay to desire greatness, but you have to understand what greatness looks like. You have to understand what it means. He redefines it for us. It's not just achieving more and more and more to be more powerful or more famous or more exalted or whatever our hearts long for, to have more comfort or more money or more uh, praise of man or whatever our hearts tend to wrestle with in our idolatry. That's not what it means to be great. It means to be humble, to walk humbly with your Savior, to serve even in the midst of that. I think when we get to heaven... I have this picture that we'll be like in this huge, huge, huge room and Jesus will be on the throne. And I think we're gonna be surprised at who's the closest to Jesus because it's not gonna be a bunch of the Christian greats that we've all heard about and known. It'll be those who are least who we literally don't know who they are. And I think when Jesus highlights what they did for the kingdom, we're all gonna be floored and we're gonna worship our king. To be the greatest means to be the least to be humble, to serve. See, the disciples, the problem with them is that they wanted greatness the way that Cain's line was great. They wanted to be remembered. They wanted to be uplifted. They wanted people to look at them and say, hey, look at my achievements. But Jesus said, look at this child. Do you know this child? What achievements has this child accomplished? What, what things will this child be remembered for? But, but this child will be the one that's the greatest in the kingdom. Humble, accepting, walking by faith, willing to serve others. This is more freeing. Friends, we either get to decide whether we want to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders or the weight of the kingdom and the cross on our shoulders. It's one or the other. Both of them are a weight to bear. One of them, we try to live and achieve other people's uh, uh, praise. We try to be great in this world. And listen, that is a shoulder to bear. That is, that is you trying to some extent be the Messiah for other people, that they may look to you and praise you or that you may bestow blessing on them over and over again. You're still trying to be great. You still have a, a, a burden to bear. Or we can take up our cross, as Jesus said, and follow him. But as the song we sang and as the scriptures say earlier, his burden is easy, it's light. Which of these do we desire, the world or humility with our Savior? Now, remember I said in chapter four, we're gonna end there, and I wanna end there right now. In chapter four, there's this in-between there, okay? It's in-between Cain's line and Seth's line, and it gives us this little hint, and so let's read it again. Genesis chapter four, verse 25 and 26. It says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you have your physical Bibles, I want you to look really quick. And notice the difference in Eve's statements. Remember I said I think that Eve was redeemed herself? In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when she bears Cain, what does she say? She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, right? But the, the, the main subject of that is what she is doing, I there. But here in this verse, who's the main subject? God. God has given. God has restored. Seth's name, interestingly, means appointed, okay? 
But it also is very, very similar. It's even used sometimes to mean substitute. And so in some ways, we can see that because Seth was the appointed child who was really a substitute for Abel because Abel was killed and Cain got kicked out of the presence and so no longer was Cain there. So this is her substitute son. This is the one who would come and bring back the family. But notice that Eve says something a little bit more too. She says, not I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, Genesis 4.1, but I have gotten a, what's the word there? A seed. Does that sound familiar? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we covered a couple of weeks ago, it said that a seed will come and crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be a seed that's going to deliver us, that's going to free us. What do I, what's happening here? I think that Eve at first is thinking about, okay, I'm being fruitful and multiplying. I have Cain, but now all of a sudden there's all this humility because her own son killed her other son. And now all of a sudden she is humble before God and says, Man, maybe this one will bring relief. Maybe this is the appointed one. Maybe this is the substitute. Maybe this is my redeemer. Here's the crazy thing. We know that that wasn't true. But Lamech thought it with Noah. Lamech said, maybe this is the one that will free us from the curse of the ground. He'll give us rest. We'll get to walk with our God finally. There will be no more suffering. That wasn't true of Noah. And so this is the story that we see all throughout Scripture. Maybe it's Abraham who God gives covenants to her. Or maybe it's Isaac, the promised son. Right? Maybe it's Jacob. Maybe it's Joseph. Maybe it's Moses who will finally free us from captivity. Maybe it's King David will be victorious. And maybe and maybe and maybe it goes until we finally get to the Christ man, Jesus himself, born in a manger, Seth's great, 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 great son. Seth is to some extent a foreshadow of the one who was going to come because Seth's line did indeed produce the Messiah. But Seth wasn't the appointed one. He wasn't our substitute. Jesus is. Jesus was the appointed one of God who was a substitute who can free us from having to feel the weight of the world and to live under the condemnation and the curse and the pressing in of sin. Jesus was the one that should have come. And out of everybody that ever lived in all of human history, do you know who should have been exalted here on earth? Jesus. Jesus served everyone. Jesus blessed everybody. Jesus was perfect. He had never sinned. And instead of being exalted, the only way Jesus lifted up was to be lifted up on a cross to die. This is what it means sometimes to follow God. So we get lifted up and crucified. So Jesus, in a lot of ways, was our example. But even more, friends, he was our substitute. Because Jesus not only just took on the wrath of God, not only died as our example, but Jesus then resurrects. He crushes the head of our pathetic enemy, Satan, and smashes him under his feet. He atones for Abel's blood. He fulfills Seth's line. He sits on King David's throne. He ascends into heaven forever so that people like Enoch who got taken up can finally be restored and justified and free. Jesus is our greater Seth. The promised child, the one that everyone is looking for. Eve was looking for deliverance. It did come through Seth's line, though, because this line decided to walk with God. Jesus suffered so that we, who really should have a a destiny like Cain's line, can actually 
have a destiny like Seth's. We can walk with God because he too is exalted above all now. And we can, by faith, one day be exalted with him. Remember I said the desire for greatness. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's hardwired in you by the king of the universe himself. Because one day we'll stand before God and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And those who have come to Jesus as king, those who have laid their lives down before him, do you know what gets to happen to us, friends? The scripture says that we will sit on the throne with God. Like, there's no words. Words are so inadequate at this moment to explain what that looks like. God shares his glory with no one. All throughout the Old Testament, it says. The angels are falling down. Some angels are singing so loud, remember, created by God for that purpose, that they're shaking the foundation of the universe. Like, there's like these pillars in the universe for some reason that hold it all up, I guess. And the angels are shaking them with their singing singing out to God, holy, holy, holy are you. And then God looks at us in our lowly state and says, come up with me. And he sits us on the throne with him and we will be there with him forever. He will exalt even us above every name. Remember that verse in Corinthians where it says, you will judge the angels? The beings that have never sinned, Paul says, actually, one day we will judge them right? God wants to exalt us, friends. And so I think this desire in our heart is not ill. I think that it's just ill-defined. We tend to want only uh, praise on this earth, but Jesus promises us something greater, that one day we can be with him forever. Friends, which are you living for? Are you living for the momentary, the present, or the eternal? Now, I know, I know, I know what this type of sermon does, we all go, I'm 98% over here and I'm 2% over there. And so maybe if I read my Bible more this week, I pray more this week, if I do this this week, listen, those things are good, right? But they're not enough. We need a savior. And what happens is, is that when we learn to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter in our faith, we'll always be swimming upstream. Why? Because that's where he is. It's when we look away that we start going wayward and, and drifting. But as we realize that Jesus became the most lowly person that ever walked on earth to face the wrath of God, only to then be exalted above every other name. When we look to that man, then when he calls us to be lowly, we can know that through faith in him, we too will one day be with him. We can fix our eyes on Jesus, not feel the weight of trying to work for our salvation. You can't do it. So he worked for you. Are we going to be Seth's line or are we going to be Cain's line? Are we going to choose to walk with God or walk in this world? It's going to tug at us and we're going to pick one or the other. Listen, I'm not telling you to go be lazy. Man, do great at your job. Be an awesome businesswoman or be an awesome musician or be an awesome architect or whatever it may be. But that's not the end. The end is something so much more. You were designed for the king of all kings, and to be in heaven on that day. Is this what your heart is reminded of, and is this what you're searching for? I love you guys. Let's pray.